If you would, remain standing and open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. It's Romans chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Please be seated. As Casey pointed out last week, chapter 8 of Romans is one of the most concise and in-depth chapters in the Bible as it relates to the gifts and the privileges that come with a sinner's justification. As he said last week, there's no way that Casey or I could explain the fullness that you find in Romans chapter 8 in just a few short sermons. So as we look at the gifts and the privileges that come with salvation, this chapter serves also as one of the greatest encouragement of assurance that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Not only assurance of our salvation, but assurance of the promises that come along with it. But it's important that we keep this chapter in context with the rest of Romans. Paul's been building up this chapter, building up to this chapter throughout the entire book of Romans so far, but he's especially been doing it in chapters 6 and 7. In chapter 6, believers are given a great confidence in the work of Christ. We've died to sin. We walk in a newness of life. Jesus set us free from sin, and we've died with him and rose with him. We are alive to God, and sin no longer holds dominion over us. We're not under the law, but under grace. And all of this comes from the completed work of Christ Jesus. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It only comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone. This should be a huge encouragement to us. That chapter 6 is just a huge encouraging chapter. It's a blessing. It's a confidence that we have in the work of Christ. But then we move on to chapter 7 where Paul writes about himself. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. And he finishes this section with, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul uses himself as an example that there's a war being waged with our flesh and with our spirit. 
So what happened to all that confidence in chapter 6? How can we be dead to sin and freed from the law, but we still struggle so much with the things of the flesh? And this is where the beauty of chapter 8 starts to come in. Chapter 8 is where Paul answers this question. He does it by reminding us of the promises that flow through the Holy Spirit. He began in verse 1 of chapter 8. There's now... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Believers have been set free from the guilt and the punishment that comes with sin. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled. We've been freed to leave off the things of the flesh and set our minds on the Spirit. And if, we are dwelling in, if, we, if Christ is dwelling in us, then we have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit dwelling in us grants us certain rights and responsibilities and privileges that come with that. So as we look at today's text, I want to back up one verse because it sets up the context of verses 11 and 12. I'm oh, sorry, 12 and 13. In verse 11 it says, If... The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if the spirit dwells in you, you have received life. Paul continues in our text. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Verse 12 is one that's often overlooked in chapter 8. But it is such a beautiful reminder. We are no longer debtors to sin. We owe nothing to the flesh. We owe nothing to sin. Not our thoughts, not our deeds, not our loyalty, not our obedience. We no longer owe sin anything. So therefore, sin no longer has a hold on us. Yet we still find the remnants of our old nature in ourself. In chapter 7, Paul wrote, For I delight in the law of God in the inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. As Casey preached through this, we need to remember, we're not talking about Paul pre-salvation. We're talking about Paul after conversion, still having this war raging within himself. Peter worded it very similarly, too, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In verse 13 of our text, Paul gives us a warning that those who live according to the flesh must die, but those who by the Spirit put sin to death will live. Now, this is not a warning that somehow we can lose our salvation. It's just not. The warning actually belongs to unbelievers. Those who live according to the flesh will die. They must die. God is just. That's just the way it is. But it's an encouragement to believers. Because those who by the Spirit put sin to death will live. So if you want to talk about assurance of your salvation, look for the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Look at your sin. 
Do you hate it? Does it grieve you? Do you confess it? Are you actively seeking to kill it? If you can answer yes to this at any time, that is only through the work of the Holy Spirit. Only through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can we even think about killing our sin. And as Paul has clearly stated in chapter 7, we're not talking about perfection here. We're not saying that we've reached some form of perfection to where we just no longer have to deal with sin. He's pointing out that by the Spirit's work, you have the ability to do this. A professing Christian that has no regard for their sin, has no signs of repentance, has no desire to worship or have fellowship with believers, has no real claim in Christ. No claim in Christ. But for those who desire these things, for those, even though we may stumble daily, for those that have a desire to kill sin, that have a desire to worship, that have a desire to fellowship with believers, that's evidence of your salvation. That is evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, many will read this and only see a command that we must mortify our sin. But we cannot miss out on the beautiful promise that's here. If we have the Holy Spirit, not only is there no condemnation for sin, but we have the ability to defeat it in our own lives. We have the ability to kill sin in our own lives. We have the Holy Spirit working within us to convict us of our sins, to root out sin in our life, and to kill it. This is the promise of sanctification. So just think about this for a moment. Think of how you were before Christ. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what we were before Christ. He continues, as such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. You've been given that Holy Spirit that will continue to sanctify you until that glorious day when we will be fully conformed to the image of the Son. This should be something that we remind ourselves of daily. It's something that should cause us to fall on our knees and worship but it should also be something that gives us a burning desire to kill our own sin. Jonathan Owens, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, wrote, not to be daily employing the spirit and new nature for the mortifying of sin is to neglect that excellent aid which God has given us against our greatest enemy. If we neglect to make use of of what we have received, God may justly hold his hand from giving us more. His graces, as well as his gifts, are bestowed on us to use, to exercise, to trade with, not to be daily mortifying sin, 
is to sin against the kindness, the goodness, the wisdom, the grace, and the love of God who has furnished us with a principle of mortifying sin. With the Holy Spirit, which again, if we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to mortify sin, to kill it, to put it behind us. And it should be something that we seek daily to do. Paul continues on in verse 14 to list the rights and the responsibilities and the privileges that come with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In verse 14 of our text, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is another example to where it's not saying, if this happens, then this happens. It's a promise. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul paints the picture of adoption. But to fully understand the weight of what Paul's talking about, we got to put this in the right historical context. Because the goal of modern-day adoption is to put a child in a safe, loving family. That was not the case in Roman culture. During this period of Roman history, adoption was almost exclusively for the purpose of finding a male heir to carry on a family name. A family may have had no male children, so they would adopt. Or they may have just not liked the children that they have, so they would go find an excellent young man to adopt. Most Roman adoptions actually happened with men in their 20s or 30s. Adopted sons were freely chosen by the head of the household. They received a new identity. Any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. New commitments and responsibilities were given to the young man that befits his new station in life. Natural-born sons could be disowned at any time for any reason, but adoptions were permanent. An adopted son could never be disowned or disinherited. Being adopted made someone a full heir instantly to their father, joint shares in all the possessions of the household, and permanently united this young man to his new father. But what does it mean to be an adopted son of God? The London Baptist Confession of Faith sums it up pretty well. It says, all those that are justified, God conferred in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put on them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. Yet they're never cast off, but sealed for the day of redemption, and they inherit the promise as heirs of everlasting salvation. John MacArthur put it this way, when we are saved, our old sinful life is completely canceled in God's eyes. We have no more reason to fear sin or death, because Christ has conquered those two great enemies on our behalf. 
In Him, we are given a, given a new divine nature and become a true child with all the attendant blessings, the privileges, and the inheritance. And until we see our Lord face to face, His own Holy Spirit will be a ceaseless witness to the authenticity of our adoption into the family of God. I can't stress this enough as we look at this. In Christ, we're cleansed from sin. We're saved from the penalty of death. We're spiritually reborn. We're justified. We're sanctified. And we will ultimately be glorified. Through the Holy Spirit, we've been granted an intimate access to the Father where we can cry out, Abba, Father, just as Christ did. There's not a great translation of the term Abba beyond Father, but it's a term that's meant to display a warm and simple family life. It reminds me much of when your own child comes to you and says, Mommy or Daddy, and they do it in so much trust, knowing that you fully love them, having no doubt that is the term that's being used here, the intimacy that we have with the Father. And this is a great promise of assurance. For those who've been justified through faith in Christ, we no longer owe allegiance to the flesh. We've been blessed with the indwelling of the very Spirit of God. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're being conformed into the image of the Son, and we have the ability to put to death the things of the flesh. And if we're being led by the Spirit, we're adopted as sons of the living God. But Paul goes on. Not only can we bear witness of that out of Scripture, but the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to it with us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The witness of the Holy Spirit is not some voice that comes down and whispers in your ear, you're safe. It's not some emotional response that you have during a tent revival. It's not some intense feeling it comes through the primary ways that the Spirit works. First and foremost, it comes through the Word of God. R.C. Sproul said, when the Spirit communicates to God's people, He communicates to them by the Word, with the Word, through the Word, and never against the Word. Sproul continues, so it is important to understand if we lack assurance and want our hearts to be at peace, because there, there are times where we lack assurance, we doubt. If we lack assurance and want our hearts to be at peace, we must go to the Word. The Spirit confirms His truth to us in and through the Word. Now, this is done in a couple of ways. Firstly, it's done by divine illumination of God's Word. The Spirit, part of the Spirit's work is to give us understanding in God's Word. Paul described divine illumination in this way. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of the age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed 
before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things has revealed to us through the Spirit. So the Spirit works through divine illumination of God's Word. But it also works as this internal witness through sanctification by conforming believers into the image of Christ. And we need to recognize that work of the Spirit because that is part of what gives us divine assurance of our salvation. Do you show the fruit of the Spirit? Do you show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Again, not perfectly. Do they ever come up? Read through 1 John and examine yourself. Ask yourself these questions. Are you walking in the light? Are you confessing sin? Are you growing in your obedience? Do you have love for your brothers? Do you have a hatred of the world? Are you growing in righteousness, growing in discipline? If you can honestly say yes to any of that, again, not perfectly all the time, but if you can say yes any of the time, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can be assured beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a son of God. And if you're a son of God, then you're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The picture that Paul paints here is not the weak Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, just pleading and hoping that you'll let him save you. That Jesus puts the efficacy of salvation on man. And what assurance could we possibly have if the ball's in our court? Paul here paints a picture of a father choosing before the foundation of the world those who he would adopt as honored sons, children of the creator and sustainer of the universe, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Paul wrote in Colossians, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Show me in here where we did something. It's not there. He writes in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and glory of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is all God. It was God who calls. It's God who grants the faith to believe. It's God who regenerates. It's God who justifies, who sanctifies, who one day will glorify. And in that, he seals us with the Holy Spirit who then bears witness to the fact that we're sons of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now it says, provided we suffer with him in, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word provided here in the ESV, uh, other translations may use if rather than provided. But it's not stating a possibility. It's not meant to state a possibility. It's not this logical, if you do this, then I'll do this situation. I think a better way to understand this would say, because we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Because suffering here is an actuality, not a possibility. The world hates the things of God. So it's inevitable that we as believers will experience persecution and suffering. But that shouldn't detour us. That actual reality of we will experience suffering is shadowed by the assurance of our salvation. And not to cut into too much of Casey's next sermon, but the very next verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you skip to the very end of chapter 8, in verses 38 and 39, he writes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a beauty to the fullness of God's grace and mercy that we can spend our lives trying to fully understand but we will not understand until that glorious day we stand before the Lord God does the calling he gives the faith, he gives the promises and he seals those promises with the Holy Spirit God does all the work and then he guarantees it but not only does he guarantee it, but then he provides us with this divine assurance of those promises. In the 1689, I believe it faithfully sums up, and bear with me for a minute, it'll take a minute, but it 
faithfully sums up the absolute gift of divine assurance. Does it in this way. It says, temporary believers and other unregenerate people may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and, fresh, and fleshly presumptions that they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope will perish. Yet those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the name of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. This certainly is not merely an inconclusive or likely persuasion based on a fallible hope. It is an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. It is also built on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit about which promises are made. It's further based on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God as a fruit of his assurance. Our hearts are kept both humble and holy. Now, this next part, it's very important because there are times where we go through a season of doubt. But true believers in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it or fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves their spirit. It may happen through some unexpected or forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his faith and face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. Yet they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ and the brethren, sincerity of heart or conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. In the meantime, they are kept from utter despair through them. So I'd ask you, do you have assurance of your salvation? Can you joyfully sing that wonderful hymn, Blessed Assurance? Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst from my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy and whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Do you have that assurance of salvation? First and foremost, have you placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? Do you have evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Does your life reflect that evidence? As John Owen wrote, are you killing sin or is sin killing you? So I would urge you, if, you've not, if you know you haven't placed your trait, 
your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. I beg you to repent and believe, to turn from your sin and call on the name of the Lord because there is assurance in God's promises. If you're in a season of doubt, I would urge you to go to Scripture. First and foremost, go to Scripture. Examine yourself. Pray for illumination. Spend time in earnest prayer that the Spirit, that the Spirit would bear witness to your adoption. Lean on your brothers and sisters in the church for encouragement and prayer. And if you sit here today and you are fully assured beyond a shadow of a doubt, you should fall to your knees and thank God. You should praise him daily. You should thank him daily. And you should be there for those that are in a season of doubt. Because we never know what season is around the next corner for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises that you would choose wretched sinners to show your glory. Lord, that you would send your son to die a sinner's death, to take on the wrath that we have earned for ourselves, Lord, for the resurrection. We thank you that not only have you revealed yourself to us, but you had given us everything we need to be fully assured of our salvation, that you've given us a spirit that witnesses with our spirit, Lord, that intercedes on our behalf, that grants us such intimate access to you. So we thank you, Lord, and we, we sit humbled and in awe of your glory. Please bless the time of singing that's to come. Bless the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. May it be a grace to us this morning, Lord. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.